Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. What you are about to hear is one of seven keynote lessons from our 2022 Commune Wellness Summit, which featured more than 30 world-renowned teachers sharing their insights on a wide range of wellness topics. Now, my hope is that by the end of this extended lesson, you will have discovered at least one aspect of your life that you feel motivated to support with more love, more attention, and more balance. Now that insight will be different for each person or even each time that you listen. And this is one facet of why I called this company Commune, because exposure to a multitude of ideas, you could say a biodiversity of ideas, is how we develop individually and thus as a collective. Now, each of these teachers has a full-length course available on Commune. So if you are inspired to go deeper, I highly encourage you to sign up for a free 14-day trial of Commune membership at onecommune.com slash trial. You will find more than 100 courses on personal development, health, yoga, meditation, and social impact, as well as the full seven-day wellness summit. So without further delay, here's the fourth lesson from our 2022 Commune Wellness Summit titled Sunlight and Your Circadian Rhythm. So I'm really excited to talk to you about light. You know, who would have thought that light would have such an impact on the human body? And actually what we're finding out, what scientists are showing is that it has a very major impact on our health and how we feel, our mood. Also, just basically in terms of our, our health, our immunity, cancer, but also our sleep. And we've talked about that as well. We'll, we'll talk more about that now as we talk about light. First of all, though, I want you to think about your body in terms of being an engine. So there are organelles in the cells of our body called mitochondria. Mitochondria are very important because mitochondria are the powerhouses that make ATP, which is the, the currency of energy of the cell. So I want you to think about mitochondria as little engines. And just like we have engines in a car that are making the wheel spin, that's locomotion. One of the byproducts of locomotion in the engine is heat. And if that heat is not dealt with in a particular way, cooling system, oil, that could threaten to shut down the entire engine and you wouldn't have any locomotion whatsoever. It's the same thing that happens with mitochondria. You see, mitochondria are designed to make ATP. This is the currency of energy of the cell. And as a result of this, oxygen is needed to take these electrons that are passed down the electron transport chain. And what can happen is, is that you can create hydroxy radicals, you can create reactive oxygen species. And these things are very dangerous and could shut the mitochondria down because they cause damage. And just like how heat in an engine can shut the engine down, it has to be dealt with in a way that takes the heat away from the engine. These radicals that are created in the mitochondria have to be dealt with as well. And so as we see here, mitochondria are these systems that create energy. How are we going to deal with these reactive oxygen species 
so that it doesn't destroy the mitochondria. This is important to understand because oxidative stress is the result of these oxygen radicals accumulating. And when they damage the mitochondria, you can have significant pathology, less optimal health, inflammation, even cancer, dementia, diabetes, and learning disabilities have been linked to mitochondrial diseases. So one of the ways that the body, actually the body has two ways of taking care of oxidative stress in the mitochondria. They have one system for the night and another system for the day. We've talked about these in terms of night and day. And one of the ways that we have of dealing with these oxidative stress issues is through a substance called melatonin. Now, melatonin is secreted from the pineal gland, but it's only secreted when there is no light hitting the retina of the human eye and going back and preventing secretion of melatonin from the pineal gland. As it turns out, melatonin is a very potent, powerful antioxidant that mops up these hydroxy radicals and reduces oxidative stress. Now, just to give you an idea about how powerful melatonin is, it's twice as powerful as vitamin E, which is a powerful antioxidant. And it's even more powerful than glutathione. In fact, melatonin upregulates the glutathione reductase system. So melatonin is very powerful and it is secreted from the pineal gland only at night and only if your eyes are not being exposed to light. So you can see it's very important that if you're not getting sleep, if you're not getting that melatonin production, you are at risk of getting mitochondrial dysfunction. So a good question would be, what happens during the day? Obviously during the day, light is hitting the retina and it's shutting down any kind of melatonin production from the pineal gland. How does the mitochondria prevent this oxidative stress from running amok? And one of the things that we'll talk about is sunlight. Near infrared radiation from the sun can actually penetrate down into many layers of tissue and excite the production of melatonin in the mitochondria. We'll talk more about that later on as we talk about the different aspects of light. But just to give you an idea of some of the symptoms of mitochondrial diseases, why this is so important, poor growth has been linked to mitochondrial diseases. Things like muscle weakness, muscle pain, vision, hearing problems, even autism, autism spectrum disorder. We, we see that there's a rapid rise in autism uh, in the last few decades. If you look at the amount of time what we're spending outside in the sun, that has dramatically re been reduced in the last couple of decades. But not just autism, but diabetes, increased risk of infection, neurological problems, movement disorders, thyroid problems, respiratory problems, dementia. These are all major things. These aren't just side issues. These are major illnesses that we see here in the Western developed world that are increasing in incidence and are linked to mitochondrial diseases. So this is really important. But why is light so important? You know, light is more than just a beautiful day. Light has so many aspects to it that we need to understand it first to be able to grapple with these medical issues that are associated with light. The first thing that you should note is when we look at light from the sun, that only 39% of the energy coming from the sun is in the visible spectrum. So that means when we go outside and we see light coming from the sun, 
we're actually seeing a minority of the energy that's actually hitting the surface of the Earth. The majority of the energy is in the infrared spectrum. That means we can't see it. It's invisible. But it's there, and we know that it's there. One of the things that I like to do to explain what near-infrared radiation is like, it's like if I were to take you outside on a sunny day and I were to blindfold you and cover up your eyes, you would still be able to tell where the sun is coming from because you would feel the warmth of the sun going through your clothes and hitting the skin, and you'd be able to tell what direction the sun is. That feeling that you're having is near-infrared radiation. It is felt on the body as warmth. Now, on the other side, on the, the ultraviolet side, uh, only 7% of the energy coming from the sun is in the ultraviolet spectrum. And that's important as well. We're not going to talk about that today as much, but just so you know that ultraviolet radiation that hits your skin, it can cause damage, but it's also important in terms of making vitamin D. So just to be aware of that. But um, this idea that visible light from the sun is what we're getting and we get vitamin D, it would be a mistake to think that the only benefit that you get from the sun is vitamin D. And therefore, if you're taking a vitamin D supplement, you don't need to go out in the sun. You're going to find out very quickly here that that would be a mistake if you believe that. So 54% of the energy from the sun is in the near infrared. That's something that I want you to keep in mind as we talk more about this. We're also going to talk about something called lux. No, not lux like uh, L-U-C-K-S, but lux, L-U-X. And it's a density of light that we see that comes from a candle that's about a meter away projected on a one meter by one meter board. And, and so the point here is, is that as we talk about the intensity of light, we're going to be using this term lux. And so you know that one lux is a pretty low intensity light. In fact, if we look at intensity of light, uh, we can start to get some benchmarks here. So one would be the type of light that you would see in terms of density at twilight. 10 would be sunset. 100 would be a very dark, overcast day. But just backing off from that, 50 would be the kind of light that you would expect to see in a family living room. Uh, when we look at the sunrise and sunset, that's about 400 lux. And then an overcast day, if you were to go outside and it was cloudy and rainy, that would be 1,000 lux. Now think about that, that that's actually 20 times brighter than it would be in your living room. We, we don't get a really good sense in terms of the intensity of light because of our iris. Uh, it, it contracts and we, it doesn't light as much light in. But anybody who has any kind of familiarity with photography will know that if you set up a manual camera to take a picture inside of a house and then don't change those settings and go outside and try to take a picture, it's just gonna look like a white flash. And that's because of the incredible amount of intensity of light that we see outside versus inside. On a full day, full daylight, uh, in direct sunlight can go up to even 100,000 lux. And so the point here that I want you to understand is that the amount of light outside of a building is far more than you would ever get inside of a building. And that's going to become important as we talk about what light does to the human body. So there are two ways in which light affects the human body. Light affects the human body as it passes through the eyes and it stimulates the back of the retina and it causes issues with the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And we're gonna talk about that right now. But there's also another way that light affects the human body, which we'll talk about later. And that is the deep 
penetration of near-infrared radiation into the mitochondria in cells of the human body. We'll talk more about that uh, later. Let's talk about how light, though, affects the human body with just coming into the human eye. So if you've ever been to a concert, you'll note that there is a conductor. And the conductor conducts and starts the music so that everybody starts at the same time. The conductor is the master clock, in other words. Everybody has a sheet of music. Everybody can start at the beginning of their music. But if everybody plays their music but at the wrong time, it's just going to sound like a cacophony of noise. You need to have a master clock so that everybody starts at the same time and you have the perfect rendition of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. So that conductor is circadian rhythm. It's the, it's the master clock. It makes sure that everything happens at the right time. And I would say that if there's one particular thing that we as humans today need to understand more than anything else in terms of getting better health, it's the idea that things need to happen at the right time. And we see that in terms of when we should be eating. We see that in terms of when we should be sleeping. We see that in terms of when we should be having our eyes exposed to light. And I think that's probably the most important issue that we ought to learn is that there are certain times when we should be doing certain things. And what's happened is this technology has allowed us to be able to do things whenever we want. We can eat whenever we want. We don't have to sleep at night. We can do whatever we want whenever we want. And that's not always the right thing to do because what we're going to talk about next is we're going to get a little bit more detailed about this thing called the circadian rhythm. So I've showed you this slide here, the circadian rhythm. It looks very complicated. And I'm doing that on purpose. I'm trying to show you that the circadian rhythm is orchestrating, it's conducting a huge orchestra of cells of the human body to do things at the, the right time. If you notice here, there's a certain time in the circadian rhythm where your temperature is the lowest, when there's the sharpest rise in blood pressure, when melatonin secretion rises, when highest testosterone is, when you're best coordinated, which is around 2.30 in the afternoon, your fastest reaction time, which is around 3.30 in the afternoon, and your greatest cardiovascular efficiency and muscle strength, which is around five o'clock in the afternoon. So every, these are very specifics and, and they have reasons why they are. But the point is, is that there are certain times of the day when certain things should be happening. And melatonin, as it says here, uh, something we call dim light melatonin onset. It's when if you are in dim light or no light, that melatonin onset will occur. This usually occurs around nine o'clock at night. And that's what we're going to talk about is dive deeper into this idea of light exposure and the circadian rhythm. You see, the circadian rhythm regulates a lot of different things in the body. It regulates uh, melatonin, which we know is one of the things that reduces cancer and it reduces cortisol production, which is very important during sleep. It's also an antioxidant. Um, there's also regulation of the peripheral clocks. All of these different clocks in the body, they're all regulated by the suprachiasmatic nucleus and the circadian rhythm. Um, hormones like uh, cholecystokinin, 
leptin, ghrelin. These are hormones that are involved with metabolism and eating and hunger and satiety. Very important in terms of regulation of when these things should be happening. Body temperature is also regulated through the circadian rhythm. Glucose metabolism, that's related to diabetes. Vasopressin, acetylcholine, cortisol, insulin, adiponectin, metabolism, all of these things are regulated through this idea of the circadian rhythm. And what's beginning to emerge is that things happen at certain times of the day for certain reasons. If you can think about this, uh, imagine a city. A city builds, okay? When you wanna have a city that is uh, expanding and, and getting bigger and better, there's aspects of it when it needs to be built and there's aspects of it that needs to be repaired. And these things have to happen at different times. They can't be happening in the same place at the same time. And so what the circadian rhythm does is it, it regulates these things. It regulates the time that you should be eating, the time that you should not be eating, the time that you should be sleeping, the time where you should be exposed to light, the time that you should not be exposed to light. And having those things done at the right time is extremely important. So they've done a number of studies where they've looked at what happens when these things are not regulated correctly. In other words, if light when there should not be light or no light when there should be light is causing a problem with the circadian rhythm timing. So in other words, if the conductor is off, what happens to the sound of the orchestra? And they've done studies in rodents where you can do this uh, for long terms, uh, jet lag models in other words, and what they found that there was reduced body temperature in these rodents, increased fat accumulation, altered immune responses, and even tumor development. And they, they found in humans, when they did this in humans, when they induced sleep-wake misalignment between the circadian rhythm and what was going on with the rest of the body, <clears throat> there was increased levels of insulin when there shouldn't have been, and also leptin and norepinephrine. These are hormones that are involved with uh, diabetes and also with um, food regulation. There's also increased markers of insulin resistance and that's a problem because that's the beginning of diabetes. And also inflammation. And we know that inflammation can lead to a lot of different diseases and also even cancer. So let's talk about how this occurs in detail. So the master clock or the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is where this all happens, gets a lot of different input from different things socially, when you're eating, tries to figure out what time of day is it outside the body. But the most strong, the strongest input into the suprachiasmatic nucleus is light. There is direct innervation from the eyes to the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And specifically, when photons of light, particularly in the blue range of light, hit something called intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, which are in the inferior portion of the retina, this projects information to the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And depending on the time of day, if it's early in the morning when this is occurring, you're gonna get an advancement slightly of the circadian rhythm. If it's at the end of the day, in fact, after nine o'clock at night, when melatonin is supposed to be secreted, what happens is it delays the circadian rhythm. And so you have to be careful, depending on where you are, what is actually going on. And then let's not forget either that light hitting the eye at night after 9 p.m. is going to shut down melatonin production 
from the pineal gland. So a couple of things to note. Number one, it's particularly light in the inferior portion of the retina. When the scientists have looked at the retina, they found that these intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells um, are particularly populated in the lower portion of the retina. What does that mean? That means particularly light in the superior visual field is going to go into the eye and be reflected on the inferior portion. So light up high is going to have a much more profound effect on the suprachiasmatic nucleus than light that is down below. That's point number one. Point number two is that all light can do this, but it's particularly blue light that seems to be more efficient at stimulating those retinal ganglion cells. So let's talk about the circadian rhythm. Here we see in the slide above where the circadian rhythm is located in terms of reality down below. In reality down below, we see the nighttime, we see six o'clock in the morning, the daytime, six o'clock p.m. and the night. And in this case, the circadian rhythm is perfectly aligned with reality. This would be the situation if we were living, for instance, on a desert island. There's no electricity. When the sun comes up, we're perfectly entrained. And when the sun goes down, we're perfectly entrained as well. Unfortunately, what's happened over time is that because of technology, we don't have a desert island effect. In fact, what we have at night is we have a situation, as we see here, where we have computers and we have smartphones. And instead of that nighttime after 6 p.m. occurring, our eyes are being exposed to light. And what happens is that light is going to the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's telling the brain, hey, it's still daytime. And as a result of that, what the suprachiasmatic nucleus is trying to do is it's trying to adjust. It's trying to adjust in a particular way to make sure that the circadian rhythm is aligned with where it thinks reality is. And because it's getting light late in the evening, it's thinking that it's too early and it needs to delay itself. And so what we see here is we see the circadian rhythm shifting to the right or being delayed. Now notice what happens in this situation. If we're trying to go to bed at night, which is where the blue arrow is, notice that our circadian rhythm is gonna be at a point where we're not ready to go to bed. And as a result of that, we're gonna experience the feeling of insomnia. And that's a very common problem that we have, especially in countries where we have technology. Insomnia at night is a big problem. Notice also on the other side, in the morning, when it's time to wake up at six o'clock in the morning, we should normally be in a situation where we're ready to wake up, and we should feel well rested and we'll be ready to go, right? But where's the circadian rhythm? The circadian rhythm is still in the blue section. We're still in the portion where we need to still be asleep according to our internal clock. And so because of the shifting of the circadian rhythm, because of light at night, we're having insomnia at night and hypersomnia in the morning. We're not getting what we need. So light after sunset, tends to delay your circadian rhythm by suppressing melatonin production of the pineal gland, and this causes your body to delay sleep onset. Whereas light early in the morning when you wake up tends to advance your circadian rhythm. Think about this. If you expose your eyes to bright light in the morning, your circadian rhythm is gonna say, oh, I may be too late now. I need to advance. I need to become earlier. And as a result of that, you're, it's a way of anchoring 
your circadian rhythm so it doesn't get further and further and more and more delayed. But there's one point that you should understand here. Unfortunately, those intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, the ones that we show here, are much more sensitive at night than they are early in the morning. And so in order to anchor, in order to prevent that circadian rhythm from shifting and becoming more delayed, you have to expose your eyes to pretty bright light in the morning time than you would have to do in the evening time to get it to be delayed. So this is a real big issue, as you can see, and exposing your eyes to light at the right time of day can have major health implications. So um, one of those is, is just the disruption of the circadian rhythm and mental health. So we've talked about how light from these intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells are projected to the conductor, the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Well, as it turns out, there is another portion of the brain that also receives input from these intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells called the perihabenular nucleus. So there's not gonna be a test at the end on this portion of it, but just know that there's another portion of the brain that also receives this input. And this portion of the brain is involved with mood, depression. You may have heard of something called seasonal affective disorder. Seasonal affective disorder affects about 5% of the population. These people have symptoms 40% of the year. It's almost always in the wintertime when the amount of daylight hours is reduced. It affects women more than men. There was a study that was done, a meta-analysis of 173 uh, studies. They were all randomized controlled trials, the placebo, and they looked at does light therapy affect seasonal affective disorder. In other words, what's happening here, they believe, is that subjects are not getting the amount of light that they need to have to be able to stimulate the portion of the brain to keep them out of depression. What would happen if we gave them enough light to stimulate that portion of the brain to keep them out of depression? And what, what the meta-analysis showed very clearly is that light in the morning was very helpful, in fact, effective at preventing seasonal affective disorder. So the question is, is how much light are we talking about? Well, in this case, they used about 3,000 lux hours. What does that mean? That means that if you were getting 10,000 lux, um, you would only, 10,000 lux, you wouldn't have to do it for an hour. You'd only have to do it for about 20 minutes since 20 minutes is a third of an hour. So a 10,000, which is typically what these SAD or seasonal affective disorder light boxes are. They give about 10,000 lux. If you're sitting about 11 to 15 inches away from them and you're there for about 20 minutes uh, in the morning, this is about the same amount of light that you would need to prevent seasonal affective disorder. This study showed that it was very effective at doing that. So yet again, not only does light affect the circadian rhythm, but it also affects the part of the brain that regulates mood as well. Here's another study that was done looking at dawn simulation. So they're simulating the sun coming up in the morning and there's actually a light that you can purchase that is plugged in into your room and it's timed. And so that even though you may be sleeping in your bed with your eyes closed, as the light is coming up in your room, photons are going 
into your basically through your eyelids and it's it's associating with your body the dawning of the sun coming up in the morning in your own bedroom and what did they show here they show that seasonal affective disorder was essentially treated with this dawn simulation of light uh, here's another study uh, looking at the adjunctive bright-like therapy for bipolar depression, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. What did this show? As you can see here in the graph, that uh, in weeks 0, 1, 2, and 3, and up to week 4 on the x-axis, they did a kind of a low-level uh, light. And then when they got to week 4, they increased the amount of time that they were giving this bright light. In this case, it was 7,000 lux bright light uh, versus a 70 lux dim red placebo light. And as you can see there at week four, the green line shoots right up. This is the active treatment arm. And what they showed was that the amount of patients in remission dramatically went up. In other words, they got better and they stayed better. So I wanted to mention here, again, the light that they gave in this situation was actually in the early afternoon between noon and 2.30 p.m. Remember, this light signal is going to the perihabendular nucleus. So it's not involved with circadian rhythm. And so it's still important even during the day, even though it's not in the morning when you're supposed to get light and in the evening when you're not supposed to get light, there's still an effect of light on the human body in terms of mood. So uh, again, very uh, definitive uh, treatments showing that light not only helps keep the master clock in sync, um, not exposing your eyes to bright light at night keeps the melatonin going, but also exposing your eyes to bright light during the day has not only circadian rhythm effects, but it also has mood effects as well. What about the effects of artificial dawn on subjective ratings of sleep inertia and dim light melatonin onset? So what is sleep inertia? Sleep inertia is this feeling that when you get up in the morning, you just kind of want to go back to sleep. We've all felt sleep inertia, right? So we know what that is. It's how easily can you get up in the morning? So what did they find is that this artificial dawn, when they gave it for about two weeks and they gave 250 versus 50 lux versus control, that there was a significant reduction in sleep inertia. In other words, it was easier to get up when they had either the 50 lux or the 250 lux dawn simulation in the room. In other words, the lights coming up in the morning, this, this early morning light exposure is, is what's shown to be beneficial. Let, let, let's face it, folks, you don't need to necessarily have an artificial light in your room. What we're saying here is that if the sun is up and you're getting up, going outside, getting that lux is very beneficial. Remember what we talked about at the beginning is that if you go outside and it's bright daylight, that's 100,000 lux. You can get a lot of lux hours very quickly if you go outside and it's 100,000 lux, as opposed to inside where a, a living room may be lit at only 50 lux. So the key here that I want you to understand is getting up in the morning, going outside, especially if the sun is up. Now, if the sun is not up because of the time you have to get up in the morning, it may be beneficial to invest in a light box to be able to get that early morning light exposure. But you don't have to do that to get the benefits of that. Here's another study showing that cognitive performance, who doesn't want cognitive performance? I mean, you're basically thinking better, all right? You're thinking better, you have better well-being, 
and better cortisol and melatonin levels when you have this artificial dawn and morning blue light. They did a, a crossover study. So this is a very powerful study when you're crossing over the same subjects. You eliminate a whole bunch of bias and confounders. This is the three conditions that they did. Number one, the dawn simulating light, which we know is, is beneficial. Then they compared it to blue lights, um, uh, 100 lux for 20 minutes for two hours after waking up, and dim lights, less than eight lux upon awakening. What did they find? They found that dawn simulating light improved subjective well-being, mood, cognitive performance as compared with dim light or blue light with minimal impact on circadian rhythm phase, which was good. So again, we're seeing here that early light exposure in the morning, it not only anchors your circadian rhythm, but it, it gives you less sleep inertia and it improves cognitive being. This is, this is great stuff. I mean, you can't get better than this. Um, why is this important? Well, it's important to make sure that you have cortisol levels high in the morning and melatonin levels high in the evening. And this is all regulated through the something called the HPA axis or the hypothalamopituitary-adrenal axis. So let's briefly talk about cortisol. Cortisol is a hormone that you need to have high in the morning, around eight o'clock in the morning. It, it peaks first thing in the morning and then gradually tapers off to very low levels at midnight. Cortisol is not bad, it's not good. It, it needs to be high at certain times of the day and low at other times. And making sure that your circadian rhythm is in sync is gonna tell you, is gonna give you these cortisol levels that are high in the morning and low in the evening. But the reason why this is important is to understand that cortisol levels continue on this 24-hour axis and they also regulate a number of the things that are associated with circadian rhythm. And so it's important that early light exposure in the morning is going to boost those cortisol levels and give you what it is that you need to have. Bright light is a very strong stimulus for adrenal production of cortisol. Uh, and proper timing is also very important. Now on the flip side of it, whereas we want high cortisol levels in the morning, and that's going to be happening because of light exposure, in the evening we want high melatonin levels. And we talked about what happens in the mitochondria. We want to cool those engines down with melatonin at night. That's the body's way of making sure that these engines in our body don't overheat. So when we go to bed, or what, before we go to bed, if we expose our eyes to light, we're shutting down the cooling system of our mitochondria at night, and that is not beneficial. As it says here, melatonin builds sleep pressure throughout the day, and it peaks at night and promotes good quality sleep. But here's the issue, is that bright light suppresses melatonin within minutes, and recovery is slow and incomplete. So you can expose your eyes to bright light at night, melatonin immediately drops, and it may not come back up again for a number of minutes or even an hour or so. Bright light, even, even light that can go through the eyelid and can be detected on the retina through closed eyelids can be sufficient enough to suppress melatonin. So that's something that we have to be cognizant of. There's been a number of studies that have looked at this and melatonin, uh, lack of melatonin at night has been associated with different types of cancers and different types of illnesses. So um, in fact, there was a study that was done that showed that when 
people who are blinded because of lack of innervation from the retina to the brain. In other words, light could be hitting their eyes, but because there's no innervation to the suprachiasmatic nucleus and therefore to the pineal gland, people who are blind in that situation actually had a lower incidence of cancer than those that had uh, intact neurons and were not blind. So I can't stress enough that this idea of light hitting the eyes at night can be a, a major health risk. And when we talk about this in terms of what we do on a regular basis at night, uh, here's a study that was looked at what happens when you, when you get home and you wanna read. You either open up the iPad or you open up the smartphone or even the e-reader. This study was, looked at, was looking at how much light from an e-reader makes it to your eyes. And as you can see here in this graph, the, the graph that you see here is actually the different amounts of irradiance over the different wavelengths on the x-axis. What you may not be able to see, and it's so small at the bottom, is what the amount of irradiance is from just a regular print book with light shining on the print book. And you can see here that that is a significant difference between the e-reader and the regular book reading at night. So does that difference actually cause any kind of difference in quality of sleep? Well, they looked at that. And what they found is that sleep latency, which is the amount of time that it takes for you to fall asleep from the beginning, when as soon as you go into bed to when you actually fall asleep, was statistically significantly higher. In other words, it was worse in those that were reading the ebook as opposed to a regular book. So what, what's, the, what's the, the consequences of this? If you have more light coming into your eyes at night, less melatonin, you have mitochondrial dysfunction potentially, and also higher oxidative stress, this can lead to cancer. And there's been a number of studies that have shown that there is a connection, for instance, between breast cancer and the amount of light this hitting the eyes at night. Another paper that was published in 2004 titled Melatonin and Cancer Risk, Does Light at Night Compromise Physiological Cancer Production by Lowering Serum Melatonin Levels? And another one out of Medical Hypotheses that was published, what, Why the Incidence of Cancer is Increasing, the Role of Light Pollution. So this is something that's showing up on the radar of scientists looking at how much light are we getting into our eyes at night after nine o'clock. This is what I believe we ought to do in the morning. We ought to have sunlight before nine o'clock in the morning. It could be anywhere from 30 seconds to 30 minutes. It depends on how much lux is coming through. So if it's full sun, you're probably gonna get enough light into your eyes to do what it needs to do, to make sure that your cognitive performance is better, to make sure that you're not as sleepy, to make sure that you're anchoring your circadian rhythm. And it's important at this point not to use sunglasses or even blue blockers because you want as much of that light, as much of that lux coming into your eyes as much as possible. So riding in your car, driving in your car or, or the windshield, these are all things that are gonna reduce the lux of the light that's coming in. It's gonna take uh, much longer for you to get the required lux hours for you to have that. So making sure that you're going outside you don't need to look at the sun necessarily, but you need to be able to be outside with nothing in front of your eyes. Now, 
there's many people that don't live in situations where that's the case. They get up at five or six in the morning. They live at more uh, extreme latitudes. One of the things that you can do in that situation is to buy what they call a SAD box that gives you 10,000 lux. And if you sit in front of it for about 20 minutes, you're going to get about 3,000 lux hours, which would be probably enough to anchor your circadian rhythm and to get the benefit of that in the morning. Uh, remember, you want to sit about 11 to 15 inches away from that light box. So think about that in terms of what to do in the morning. Now, what about in the evening? You want to mitigate as much as possible the amount of light that's coming into your eyes because any amount of light that's coming into your eyes is going to hit the inferior retinal, intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, which project to the suprachiasmatic nucleus and shut down melatonin production in the pineal gland. Now you know what I'm talking about when we talk about this. So, you know, making sure in any way possible that you're not getting your eyes exposed to bright light. But on the same token, we are living in the 21st century and you can't always avoid that. So if that's the case, it might be reasonable to make sure that you're in night mode. That is a mode where it produces less blue light, more red light. Um, you also may be able to turn things down, put dimmers on your lights, make sure that lights are low down because low down lights in your visual field are going to be hitting the superior retinal ganglion where there is not a lot of intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. Also making it more reddish so that you have less of the blue light, which is more effective at stimulating those retinal ganglion cells. Um, so all of these things are important, minimizing the amount of pollution in the bedroom, especially up high, the, the light pollution specifically. Uh, these are things that you want to do at night. So again, to review, in the morning, plenty of light, plenty of light. If you can't do it, buy a light box. At night, try to reduce as much as possible the amount of light that's coming into your eyes so you can get the full benefit of melatonin, which is the coolant for our engines, which are the mitochondria in our cells at night, and also get the benefit of that melatonin production from the pineal gland that tells our body we're ready to go to sleep and bringing on that sleep uh, that we need. Thank you for listening to the fourth lesson from our seven-day Commune Wellness Summit titled Sunlight and Your Circadian Rhythm. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you are a regular listener, you have a sense for how much effort we put into this show's creation, and we really do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders, as well as the full-length Wellness Summit. The membership version of this summit includes yoga, meditation, and breathwork classes paired with each daily lesson. So you can actually embody what you are learning. For 14 days of free Commune membership, just visit onecommune.com trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with suggestions and criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, and not leastly, I would like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Ruby Foster, Emma Fret, Silvana Alcala, 
and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. Thank you.